0: The year 2020 is almost over. Golf in 2020 pretty much is over. And what a wild year it was. Your two co hosts of this podcast, we were on the ground in Jacksonville when the pandemic shut the PGA Tour down. We were there at the majors when history was made. We were reporting on a number of things because, honestly, the core of our job is writing and reporting. So we combed through our phones and our recorders for some sound bites that we didn't bring to the podcast this year, the best things that we didn't prioritize for the Drop Zone, are coming there right now. We're going to spend today bringing those sound bites to you. You may have caught wind of them elsewhere, but the words and opinions you'll hear today are going to be shared audibly for the very first time. So enjoy this little time machine of stories right here on the Drop Zone. Okay, Dylan, let's not keep the people waiting. First things first, let's start with you. What have you got?
1: Sean, I went back through my phone and I just wanted to listen to a bunch of the interviews that I had recorded. And by far the most interesting place to go back to was before all of this. And by this, I mean the pandemic, the modern world, the the golf and sports world as we currently know it. This meant going back to the Players' Championship the second week of March. And this is obviously, it's one of the biggest events of the year. There's a ton of big names there. I went down with James Colgan, our young colleague. And so it was it was his first ever golf event as a media member, actually. And we were talking to some of the players' championship rookies. We were getting some advice rookie to rookie, any advice they would have for James, uh, which was pretty fun hey what's going on everybody it's james colgan here resident newbie at golf.com we're about to head into wednesday at the players and since this is my very first golf tournament as a member of the media we wanted to talk to some of the tour's young guns about some advice they might have for me (laughs) just don't get in the way it was a beautiful week in northern florida sean and and the pandemic was swiftly approaching we certainly knew it was a thing but Golf is particularly good at blocking out the rest of the world. Um, The big storyline was Tiger Woods deciding to stay home. That was a a big blow to the Players' Championship, obviously. Um, And Rory McIlroy was world number one at the time. He's, He's down to number four now, but he had just given a rousing press conference, again repudiating where the money was coming from for the Premier Golf League, the PGL. You remember this? Remember when this was the biggest conversation in golf? It was this proposed venture, the rival to the PGA Tour. It had money flowing in from the Saudi government, and Rory had chosen his side of that battle. He was sticking with the PGA Tour. Uh, And one of my interviews that week was Brandel Chamblee, who was over the moon about Rory speaking out. He was comparing him to various pioneering sports figures from from all over the sports world. And, And so here's a little bit of that. I started thinking about Arthur Ashe, Muhammad Ali, you start thinking about people that are speaking of issues bigger than their sport, more important than their sport, because this goes far beyond the amount of money they're going to make playing golf. Mm-hmm. This, this goes to philosophical, moral, ethical issues. Sean, the PGL isn't completely dead as a concept now, but it has certainly faded from conversation.
0: It doesn't feel alive, though. <laughs> like I, It's hard to say that it's dead, but I don't know if there's anything I've seen in recent months that it's like, oh, yeah, that thing's still yeah, kicking around. Yeah, it's
1: probably around. in a little bit of a zombie state. But anyway, another story I was working on at the time, which also feels pretty dated, Sung Im, who was at that point just about the hottest player in the world. He was reigning rookie of the year. He had notched a couple top three finishes in the fall season, and then he had torn up the Florida swing. He won the Honda Classic. He finished third at Arnold Palmer, so he was coming into the players hot. He had just switched caddies. He was talking about finding someone who spoke Korean to be on the bag full time, and he had kept a particularly busy schedule, famously leading the tour in events played, Uh, He literally didn't even have a home. He just stayed in a hotel each week. And if he had one of those rare off weeks, then he would just find another place to stay. Uh, So the burning question I had was about his service because, you know, South Korean golfers often run into this. By the end of your 20s, you're legally required to complete about two years of compulsory military service. And I had heard that the only way out was to win an Olympic medal. Remember the Olympics, Sean. We're at the forefront of our minds at this point. We were wondering oh, who would gosh. qualify for the U.S. team. So I was curious for Sungjae, okay, are the Olympics just everything in your mind right now or is there another way to do it? If you win a major championship, would that do it? Surely if you win the Masters, you would get an exemption in the same way that you would <laughs> for an Olympic medal. So I wanted to ask him about that. And here's some of what he had to say. I don't know too much about this, but... I was curious if, um, what the rules are for your service in South Korea and if there's anything that you could do in your play out here that would get you a, a waiver from that service or anything like that.
2: I'd about the do
0: you want to the
1: Olympics. I, I met the
0: Olympics. Yeah. No, only. And so
1: is that a, a yeah. goal of yours?
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> 중요한, mm-hmm. 중요한 시기고, 기회죠, mm-hmm. Yeah, this is an important time for me and an incredible opportunity that I can look at to um with the Olympic medals. Yeah. And then He still has chance 4 years, 4
0: years after. after. Mm-hmm. Okay
1: saying probably before 30 he would have to make a decision yeah are you having fun out here and and what's your favorite part of life on the pga tour yeah getting to play with some of the best stars um, in golf and getting to beat them is also a lot of fun too (laughs) sungjae was unable to keep that same magic going after the restart he didn't really contend in another event until actually the fall masters where he finished t2 but he did buy a house in Atlanta, so some things have changed for Sungjae. He's growing up, uh, but there's definitely a good chance he's got the Olympics circled on his calendar for next summer.
0: And he almost won the Masters. He almost
1: won the Masters, except Dustin Johnson really put his foot down. <laughs> um, so, Sean... Back at the players, reality started setting in. You can remember how the week went. It was business as usual. Then, you know, the Ivy League suspended its seasons. Spectators started getting removed from events. And then the NBA shut down. It was business as usual on tour for a lot longer than it was in the other sports. There was hand sanitizer available, but that was really the only visible difference. Eventually, some players stopped signing autographs. Uh, They had the Chainsmokers concert Wednesday night. Fans were allowed in on Thursday morning. Mid-morning on Thursday, Jay Monaghan held a press conference announcing there would be no fans the rest of the tournament, but that the tournament would go on, and then the tournament schedule was expected to continue. And it was awkward. I mean, there were fans still entering the tournament, even though the commissioner was saying that the next day it would be unsafe for fans to be on site. So the whole thing was very strange. Here's a little bit of what Jay had to say about his rationale. When the governor of your state comes out and changes his position and says that he is he is now uh, discouraging the mass gatherings or supportive of postponement the then uh, that that has a serious because natural responsibility partner in the state.
2: you you really got to listen very carefully, as we had with every decision that preceded. So I think that was, that really was, we were thinking along those lines very clearly, but that, that to me was really the final validating point to the strategy.
0: This reminded me, as you just went through it, of that scene in Wolf of Wall Street where Leo DiCaprio is thinking about leaving, but he says, You know what?
1: I'm not leaving.
2: I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the show was literally going on until, of course, it wasn't. But um, it, was, it was awkward also when players were finishing their rounds on Thursday after that first round being asked about the no fan policy, being asked if the tour was taking the right approach. And of course these guys don't know exactly what's coming. They don't know exactly what to think about this policy. They generally got in line. And one of the last things I recorded from the week was Dustin Johnson on this no fan thing. Here's what he said. One thing uh, Jay said was that the sport kind of lends itself to social distancing. Do you kind of feel safer because there is this 400 acres and naturally you guys aren't breathing down each
2: other like you might be in a basketball game? Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, obviously, basketball is a lot different. You know, the guys are, you know, in very close proximity the whole game. So, um, and, you know, you can't get around not, not touching other people around here. You, you can't, you know, you're by yourself. You- Known as the greatest wingspan in golf in terms of slapping hands with fans going to the next tee. Are you still doing that or has it even crossed your mind? No, air fist bumps. Air. Yeah. Just just for now.
1: Air fist bumps, Sean. Air fist bumps. That's what stuck with me from DJ. Later that night I got the email from the tour. The tournament was off. The schedule was on hold. I took the first flight I could get the next morning. Bern Wiesberger was on my flight. He was trying to get back to Austria before he was worried that the, uh, the border was going to close before he would get home to his family. Change was happening everywhere and not even the golf world was immune. But of course, we didn't really understand that at the time. Uh, there was no way to know the full extent of how things would change. But I will say the air fist bumps stayed a thing. I've been doing them all year long. Uh, I just wish <laughs> that everything had been that simple.
0: Oh, man, that is so true. The air fist bumps, I was doing them in Wisconsin. I think when I went and caddied for Martin Trainer in, in Minneapolis, that's like middle of the summer. We were still kind of doing air fist bumps. Uh, but then eventually we're all like, look, I don't think we're going to pass it to each other outside just by touching knuckles.
1: That It, it seemed like that was not going to be the, the super spreader event was the the fist bumps. We've learned a couple of things over the course of the year. Not as much as we wish.
0: All of that, though, all everything you just ran through, it truly feels like years ago. We have all aged, I think, a couple years uh, in the last ten months or so. Forget how great Rory was playing, mm-hmm. the, like later end of twenty nineteen, early twenty twenty. Forget that Sungjae was incredible and playing great at like really tough golf courses. You forget that Tiger Woods was not in great shape. Yeah. He was, his back was all kind of like tight. We were, that's, that was the, the major concern, right? It was like, would Tiger be ready to play the Masters if he doesn't play any events in March? And then, damn, none of that matters.
1: One last thing I want to buzz through before we move on. Rory McElroy, before that Players' Championship, here were his last six starts T3, one, four, T3, T5, five five i think that was seven events actually but you get the idea the dude could not finish outside the top five and then since then (laughs) what he had one t5 in the masters in in classic rory fashion
0: yeah one t5 in which he never truly was on anyone's radar to win the event uh that that seems to kind of encapsulate if if you will all of rory's like last three or four years
1: All right, Sean, let's keep this podcast moving forward because I'm curious what you found going back through your interviews from the year.
0: If we look at our year, we spent a lot of 2020 talking about Bryson DeChambeau, like a lot of 2020. If there was someone who won 2020, it was probably Bryson. The man put on like 40 to 50 pounds, changed his swing. He started bombing it. He won the US Open by six Mm -hmm. shots at Wingfoot this American golf bastion. He won the PGA Tour driving distance title. He did so much with his driver and we we're aware of like most of it, but the result that no one is really talking about is how he changed golf course setup. Mm. Now, some of the people listening to this, they might not love to hear this. Some of them don't really like Bryson DeChambeau. He's a polarizing figure, but the truth is is he's putting more thoughts In other heads across the golf industry than anybody in the golf world his first win of the year uh, i think everyone will remember this it came in detroit at detroit golf club
2: well since the beginning of the shot link era that was 15 years ago no player on the pga tour has led the field in strokes gained off the tee and strokes gained passing in a single week bryson did that this week how incredible is that we've seen what he can do with the driver but he is carrying
0: do you remember what bryson said earlier that week what did he say he was chiding donald ross the course designer the famed architect he described what he was going to do on certain holes the lines he was going to take off the tee what bunkers were in play for him what bunkers were definitely not in play for him he said no offense mr ross Except he had to offend Mr. Ross that week. He bombed his way all over Detroit Golf Club. He shot 23 under par. He won by three. The worst score he carded all week was a 67. Now, I was there in Detroit for most of it. This is a classic golf course. It's been there for over a century. It started in the 1800s. Was this golf course always going to punch back at golfers more than 100 years later? No but this felt like egregious. The line he took on 18 to set up his finishing birdie was ridiculous. And it shook up part of the executive staff at Detroit golf club. I interviewed the superintendent. His name is Jake Mendoza a couple weeks later. And I asked him straight up, like now that you've had time to process what happened, what will you be changing? If anything,
2: um, there's, there's a few things that seem obvious. There's a few T's that uh, we were looking at to move back, um, mainly to uh, make sure that our current fairway bunkers are in the landing zone for, for the tour player. Yeah. Uh, there's also a few areas where we were looking at possibly adding a, a, a bunker, a fairway bunker, or a cross bunker. Uh, nothing firm yet we're still evaluating all of the shot link data and Mm -hmm. uh, coming up with our our plan for how we're going to uh, make the course more challenging moving
0: forward. To recap, only a couple weeks after Bryson won, they're already talking about moving tees back for the sake of old Donald Ross bunkers. They're talking about adding new bunkers for new driving lines. They want to make this course more challenging for pros. That's how they intended to defend against Bryson and how he and future pros will play this golf course. It's not faster greens. It's not firmer fairways. It's bunkers in spots where he's actually going to land the golf ball. I think that tells you everything you need to know about the effect of Bryson this year is that one man changing his body and his swing and his gameplay is going to alter this century-old golf course that he plays one week out of the year. Like Nate Lashley... Shot 25 under there the year prior. So he scored better than Bryson. Mm-hmm. But there was no discussion like this. Like only when Bryson does it his way does it affect change. And so I know you saw the true effect to the Bryson. <clears throat> excuse me. And what's interesting is that it wasn't just at Detroit Golf Club and you got a little bit of a look at what he did to the minds at Augusta National because immediately after the U.S. Open at Wingfoot, right, every single golf website says, what is Bryson gonna do at Augusta? I wrote this lengthy feature on it for Golf Magazine, golf podcast discussed it at length. We even had our sister podcast, Subpar, asking Jordan Spieth about Bryson's chances at the Masters.
2: This guy, if he has to lose the Masters to not win the Masters. Interesting. He... Can I ask about his that? fairway on at, at how far he's flying the golf ball if it's warm right i mean if it's if it's nice temperatures i mean number two is fairways 70 yards wide number three flies it in the upslope. no advantage four five six um but you get to eight carries a bunker it's mm-hmm. 80 yards wide nine his fairway on nine goes from the scoreboard off number one 90 yards left of the fairway to the bunkers off number seven mm-hmm that's his fairway. I mean, okay. it's it's so, a thousand yards wide. So, saying that, does that make you like kind of rethink it all, what you're doing? Or is it just like, what am I going to do between now and the I, don't, I mean, and gain you, 40, like, dude. Drink, get, drink get, a bunch of get, protein get, Drink uh, for these. Yeah, and drink gain 40, you know. Um,
0: Lo and behold, Spieth was a bit of a prophet because early reports are you were right on the ground covering this, Dylan, is that Augusta had all of a sudden. Added some trees to the left side of the 13th fairway. Added some trees to the left side of the 13th tee box. You know, this is one of the most famous golf holes in the world. And they changed the look of it because of Bryson DeChambeau. This is the first time that they like really did this with one player in mind since Tiger proofing 15 to 20 years ago. All of it is further evidence of what Bryson did this year. He made players think differently about their power. He made instructors feel all kinds of things with what they do in teaching golf swings. And he very quietly made course designers and superintendents think really hard about their setup for his individual visits. So Dylan, do you think Wingfoot's membership has not thought a bit about how their course handled Bryson's game or John Bodenhammer of the USGA about how he needs to set up a mm-hmm. US Open? I think
1: the Wingfoot members have a lot of things on their mind. I'm not sure that Bryson DeChambeau was yes. there winner of choice. I'm not sure under par was their desired no. winning score. I'm not sure seeing their course get taken apart with drivers and wedges is something that they had in mind, but I do <laughs> think that it was an interesting contrast. The style of golf demanded at Wingfoot, it turns out it sets up perfectly for Bryson and Augusta national in some ways does, but in other ways it demands a different sort of precision, which was really interesting to watch. And it was really interesting to watch just how interesting it was to watch because at Augusta, there were no spectators <laughs> there uh, nominally, but there were members, there were guests. So there were people there and the number of people following Bryson's group on day one was close to, if not more than the number of people watching Tiger Woods' group, which is something I never thought I would be able to say. Nope. That doesn't happen. It does not happen. So that was really, really, really interesting and just a sign of how much Bryson changed the conversation this year.
0: I really hope that Bryson continues to play his his typical 25 to 26 event schedule, like during a normal year where there's not a three-month long break. I want him to take on like Riviera again and to see like look how does his game match up at every mm-hmm. old golf yeah. course every revered golf club that is a little uh, stingy to change that that doesn't want to change like a lot of people have said this but Bryson just doing this everywhere it doesn't have to result in victories but it can him doing this everywhere is going to make people think differently about where bunkers got to be how firm fairways got to be Maybe firm fairways actually aren't aren't a great way of defending Bryson DeChambeau right. because that's what Wingfoot was. So uh, that's enough of Bryson. My final bit of untold uh, reporting that I did this year is actually a recent conversation I had. The subject of it is a player many people forgot about in 2020. I forgot about him. I think you probably did too, Dylan. His name is Jim Furyk. Furek had, I think, one of the most confusing 2020s this year. Now, everyone had a confusing 2020 season, but I know that. Jim Furek is right up there, though. He played 13 events on the PGA Tour. He made the cut only six times. It's less than half. That's not good for him. He's not happy about it. He never once finished in the top 15 and he failed to qualify for the FedEx Cup playoffs. He made less than 300 grand in the finishes in which he did make the cut. The last time he made that little in a tour season was 1994, 26 years ago. I think that was his rookie season on tour. So basically one of Jim Furyk's worst performing seasons in his career. And yet, despite this wacky shortened season, he led the PGA tour in fairways hit percentage and greens and regulation Mm. percentage. I don't care what era you play in, how short you hit it, what events you play. It was an incredible ball striking year. And that's really an incredible ball striking statistic. It's just justifiably confusing to pair that with a not so good season. Like I couldn't wrap my head around it. We talked about it in our, our team slack conversations Instead of trying to figure it all out on my own, my boss said, why don't you reach out to Jim Furyk and see what he thinks of it all? So I did. Sean? Yeah, this is Sean. Hey, Jim Furyk, how you doing? And I got him on the phone, and I basically said, all right, Jim, like, what gives? How do you explain this weird season in which you were one of the best players in the world at ball striking, and you pretty much got nothing out of it? It turned into, I think, uh, a pretty fun conversation. His reasons for it were plentiful. His putting wasn't great.
2: There's so many different layers to uh, to why. I, I, I would say the simple answer is that my putting was extremely average at best. Yep. Um, I would have said I probably finished right around zero in shots game putting, so that doesn't get you anywhere. His chipping wasn't great. I would say that my short game from around the greens the last couple of years has been subpar for me.
0: He doesn't really care about fairways hit.
2: So I should hit a lot of fairways. So one of the reasons I hit it so straight, it was, I hit the ball straight, um, but I also don't hit it as far. So, you know, that's one of the reasons I lead. Now the greens and regulation stats, a little bit more, that has a lot more layers to peel off of it.
0: He doesn't think you should either. <laughs> he didn't have any like streaky weeks in his in which his putter was on fire. And if he's being honest, there are just a lot of courses where he can't compete in the same way he once did. Muirfield Village, for example, is just tough for him to contend at, even though he loves the place.
2: Uh, it's just, it's a golf course that's become very, very difficult. And it's yeah. a place that I played last year that, I, I love the place, but I have to be honest, it's, a, it's an aerial attack and yep. i have giving up too much heritage to play, to play it in the air like I need to anymore. I used to give up a little
0: bit of yardage and still compete. Now, I'm just giving up way too much yardage. Now, Furyk, he laid out a number of ways in which course setup is more difficult for him these days because it plays more to the advantage of the long hitter. Pins are tucked, at least by his estimate, more than they used to be. The rough isn't as long as it used to be. These are like the very tiny details that kind of crush the souls of guys in their upper 40s who don't hit it quite as far. But the important part of our discussion, at least the part that I love the most, is that Furyk was adamant that he doesn't sound bitter. Bitter just looks ugly was something he told me. It was pretty endearing, actually, because I think you or me or anyone in his shoes would naturally be somewhat bitter to this because if you think about it, he's one of the best people on the planet at delivering the club face to the golf ball and what could be more important in this game. And he's still doing it at 50 years old, but that doesn't really get you a whole hell of a lot on the modern PGA Tour. You probably should be bitter about it, but Furyk is not, not at all. If anything, he ignores that. He focuses right now on the things that make sense for him, things he can control, his putting, his chipping, winning on the Champions Tour, which he did twice, his schedule of events that need to make sense for him and other people who have played really well later into their careers
2: you know I remember having this conversation back in I think it was honestly I think it was, I was 39 years old uh, you know I wasn't winning which uh, in like 07 08 09 I was playing solid but I wasn't winning and I had a guy interview me at the tour championship and asked me all these young players are coming out and you're farther are you afraid the game's going to pass you by and I said well someday it's going to pass me by but it's not going to be tomorrow so nothing, nothing to worry about right now and then my best year ever, and I was Player of the Year. The, the very next year, same guy walked up to me afterwards and said, "Touche, <laughs> you're right. It wasn't. It, it wasn't. It wasn't tomorrow." Um, I said, "Hey, it's gonna happen someday. It happens to everyone, and you yeah. try to prolong that as, as far as you can." I just, you know, my one weakness right now, and and I really still believe. I mean, I watched Brian Gay went over in Bermuda, yep. and I, I still, he doesn't head any farther than I do, or, or as far, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I still think that I can compete at certain courses. It's just the number of golf courses that I have that opportunity to win on is significantly lower than it used to be. And and, uh, and that's just a fact.
0: To me, it was a bit of a lesson that can be applied everywhere, like in every industry. There are going to be things that you can control and things that you cannot. Sometimes the most glaring, obvious things in your life that you think are deficiencies are just things that everyone's paying attention to. It's hard to look away from them if it's holding you back, but sometimes those things are out of your control and even while it might feel obvious that you need to address them, there are oftentimes ways which you can be just smarter and take a different trajectory at solving that issue. The less obvious ways might be easier and more profitable in the end. It has me excited at Jim Furyk's 2021 to see what he can do on the PGA Tour. If he figures out his putting, if he figures out his short game a little bit, and continues to hit the ball really, really straight, do you think that he can get it done, though, Dylan?
1: Well, it strikes me that your two stories here, Sean, are different sides of the same coin. Do I think Jim Furyk yeah. can get it done, as in qualify for the FedEx Cup playoffs? I'm not so sure. I mean, it's unlikely he's going to lead the tour in greens hit again. But if he does, then how do you not end up there? I mean, I, yes. G.I.R. I mean, that's not an outdated statistic. As much as strokes gained has has taken over the world, there are still some basics. The hitting fairways and greens is advantageous. I mean, it's an interesting point that he brought up about getting streaky, though, because I think if I am a top ball striker in the world, I would rather be you know, the best putter in the field, one out of every five tournaments and, you know, below average the rest of the time than just consistently being a yes. decent putter, if that makes
0: sense. That's where the money is, man. That The old adage, drive for show, putt for dough uh, can be very, very true when you're talking about being streaky because Furyk is going to hit a ton of fairways. He probably He'll probably be a, if he has a decent year, he will probably be top five in fairways hit percentage. Uh, The greens thing is mind bending because only Henrik Stenson has finished number one in both those categories in the last three and a half decades since they really started keeping track of those stats. So I don't know. I have a lot of confidence. This is the kind of bias that comes when you spend 25 minutes on the, on the phone with somebody listening to them, talk optimistically about their chances. So I think he can get it done. I think he definitely can qualify. I think he could win. Wow. I mean, he almost beat Rory at the Players a couple years ago. Remember when Rory won the Players? It was his huge defining moment. Jim Furick took second. Jim Furick was the man making it tough that for was,
1: him. It was hard-charging Jim Furyk, hitting long iron into the 18th <laughs> hole. That was awesome. It was really, really cool. I mean – I like the balance of stories that we have here because there's the the world being sent into chaos. There's the golf world being <laughs> redefined. And then there is the golf world as it always was. And, and someone like Jim Furyk seeing how he can compete and stay relevant in the modern world.
0: I love it. I think we have put a pretty good bow on 2020. Hopefully 2021 is as good to the drop zone as 2020 was. Hopefully, you all will give us a little present for Christmas. Give us that five star rating. Give us that review. Wouldn't that be nice, Sean?
1: Subscribe button. A little five star review from all our favorite listeners.
0: (laughs) Uh, And we'll see you next year.